Good morning. It's been a while since since I was up here, but you'll probably remember that I've been been looking at the book of Jonah, and I intend to do that again this morning. This morning I'm turning to uh, Jonah chapter 3. Before I read there, since it's been a little while, very briefly, you're familiar with the story, but God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, Israel's most hated and feared enemy. Jonah doesn't want to go, and when he's told to go 500 miles northeast, Jonah buys a ticket to go over 2,000 miles west with the stated intention of getting away from the presence of the Lord. It doesn't work. God hurls a great storm on the sea, and the ship starts breaking apart. The pagan sailors urge Jonah to call on the God that he's running away from. Jonah admits that the storm is his fault and tells him to throw him overboard and the storm will stop. They do, and the storm stops immediately. The pagan sailors worship all-powerful God while Jonah sinks beneath the waves. But God had prepared a fish, a great fish, the Bible calls it, that swallowed Jonah. I'm going to pick up the end of chapter 2, reading the last two verses. In verse 9, we see Jonah repenting. In verse 10, we see God's response. Chapter 2 and verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Vomiting doesn't sound like a very good way to be sent, but I bet Jonah was quite relieved to be vomited out by the fish after spending three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Go ahead and read the first three verses of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. God's giving Jonah a second chance. I ask you this morning, would you have given Jonah a second chance? I don't think I would have felt like it. Said, no way, buddy, you ran the opposite direction from where I sent you. But God gave Jonah a second chance. A man once asked a vice president, vice president of the Bank of America, huge bank, and he asked him, if one of your bank managers stole a huge amount of money from one of your branches and ran to South America and lived there for a number of years, then came back and said, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Could I have my job back? Would you give him a second chance? The vice president said, certainly not. I would not give that man a second chance. He's proved he's not trustworthy. 
That's how we tend to respond. That's how I would tend to respond. I'd say, hey, look at the track record. Can't trust you. There are numerous examples in Scripture of God giving people a second chance when they repent. Think with me about just a couple of those. A couple of second chances. I think of David. David commits adultery and commits murder. By his own mouth, he deserves death. God gives David a second chance when David repents. What about Peter? Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. Peter got a second chance. What about John Mark? John Mark wimped out on a missionary journey, went home to Mama, let Paul sit. But John Mark got a second chance. And Paul gave John Mark a second chance. Toward the end of Paul's life, we see him asking for the man who had deserted him that he didn't want to trust to go with him again. John Mark got a second chance. How about Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, as we call it? I agree with my father-in-law. He says we, this parable should be called the parable of the father's heart. It shows God's heart toward each of his sons. Toward us, really. In the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son runs off with his father's money, squanders it, but when he turns around and comes back to the father, the father runs to meet him with open arms. He doesn't stand at a distance, his arms crossed, and say, now you have to prove yourself. Get out in the field and start working. A lot of us may have felt like that would be a more appropriate response. He's going to take advantage of me if I take him back. But no, the father welcomes him back hugs and kisses him and gives, gives him his place as a son, puts a ring on his finger, puts shoes on his feet. He has a second chance. My last example isn't from Scripture. It's me. I rebelled against the one who created me. The one who saved me. I didn't want anyone, including God, telling me what to do for several years. But I was given a second chance. I don't deserve a second chance. Have you been given a second chance? You know, God could have gotten the message to Nineveh some other way. God's capable of that. God could have had a massive hand appear in the sky and write His message to the Ninevites in the sky. You think that would have got their attention? I think it would. You know, God did do. God did 
send a hand to write on the wall of the palace, of the Babylonian palace. And he got their attention. But God chose not to do that. God could have gotten the message to Nineveh by speaking directly to Nineveh. You know, God did that with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. There was smoke and there was fire and the thundering of God's voice, and they begged him not to speak to them directly anymore, but to speak to Moses and let Moses speak to the people. They were afraid. You think God couldn't get the Ninevites' attention that way? He could have. But he chose not to. Why did God choose to send the warning through Jonah? To give Jonah a second chance. I don't know, but maybe God wanted his prophet to face the hatred in his own heart. Maybe God wanted to do something in Jonah. Maybe God wanted Jonah to witness God's compassion for the people of Nineveh, the people that Jonah despised and feared. It's probably been about 20 years ago that Leonard Mast from uh, Hillcrest Holmes spoke here. And I don't have that time frame exactly. That's a guess. And I don't remember what Leonard Mast preached about. I don't remember his subject at all. But I remember one thing that he said. It really grabbed my attention, and I think about it regularly. He said, God is working in every heart all the time. Think about that. God is working in every heart, every person, not just the people sitting here in this room, but God's at work, calling, working in every heart all the time. Constant. God was working in the hearts of the Ninevites and in Jonah's heart simultaneously. God's working in calling his prophet to himself while he's calling the people of Nineveh to himself. The first part of verse 2 is worded almost exactly like the uh, second verse of chapter 1. Arise and go to Nineveh. <clears throat> it's his second call. In verse 3, you'll notice that Jonah is stressing that this time he obeyed what God told him to do. The first time, he did the opposite of what God told him to do. But the second time, he arose, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It tells us next that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Some, several commentators mentioned that it could be translated, it was an exceedingly great city to God, or it was important to God. And that tells you something because the Israelites believed God only cared about them, not about all the nations around them. But God cared about everyone. Nineveh was important to him. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, as the Bible says. For 50 years, Nineveh was the largest city in the world. 
It was unequaled in wealth and power. It had splendid temples and palaces and fortifications. It was built to withstand a 20-year siege, which is pretty amazing. The walls around the city were 100 feet high and 50 feet wide, wide enough for three chariots to run abreast around the top of the wall. There were 1,500 towers that rose higher than the wall, spaced out around the, the wall. The city of Nineveh lay in a plain that was almost totally surrounded by rivers. Some have called it the Assyrian Triangle. Surrounded by, by rivers, they were next to the Tigris River and they had the Kosa River flow right through the city. There were several cities in this plain. Nineveh was the capital city and the entire plain, the entire metropolitan area, if you will, was known as Nineveh. I was imagining what it was like for Jonah to approach Nineveh. One of the things I read in, in studying about the Assyrians was the Assyrians sometimes skinned their prisoners alive then took the skins and stretched them on the city wall. Can you put yourself in Jonah's shoes and imagine what was it like to approach Nineveh? I think it took a lot of courage. Jonah was serious about keeping his promise to the Lord. He wasn't going to turn back this time. Read verses 4 and 5. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I'm going to guess Jonah put a lot of feeling into this because that's actually what Jonah wanted to see happen. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Jonah's one-sentence sermon, he may have said more than that, but we were only told of one sentence. Jonah's one-sentence sermon produced the greatest response in recorded history. Everyone repented. In chapter 4, the end of the last verse, God says there's over 120,000 people in Nineveh. And everyone from the greatest to the least repented. Jonah barely started preaching. It was on the first day. It says everyone repented. Now, when Noah preached for 120 years while he was building the ark, how many people repented? No one outside of his immediate family. That was it. Just Noah's family. So did Noah not hear God right? Was Noah not doing what he was supposed to? No. Noah was doing what he was supposed to. It's important that I am faithful where God has called me and I leave the results to Him. Repentance is an individual choice. Clearly, God sent Jonah to Nineveh because He knew the Ninevites were ready to repent. They were ready to hear the warning of God's judgment coming. They believed God. 
You see, in the Hebrew says they believed in God. It has the idea of putting their trust in Him, not just believed there is a God, but put their trust in Him. They fasted and put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was usually made of goat's hair, and it was the normal dress of slaves and those who were mourning. It's possible that uh, two plagues in 765 and 759 B.C. and a solar eclipse in 763 B.C. may have helped prepare Nineveh for Jonah's message of judgment. These things would have been seen as signs of divine wrath. That judgment is coming. And so these things may have prepared the people of Nineveh for when Jonah showed up. They believed judgment was coming. Jonah's appearance may also have gotten their attention. I don't know. In the 1920s, the Literary Digest had a story of an English sailor who was swallowed by a whale shark in the English Channel. There was, they were trying to harpoon this, this whale shark about the size of a school bus. And one sailor managed to fall overboard in trying to throw a harpoon. He fell overboard. The whale shark turned and swallowed him. Now, normally, these are gentle creatures, as, as big as they are. They don't usually attempt to eat people, but this one did. Turned around and swallowed the man and went beneath the waves. His friends all thought that was it. It's the last time they've seen him. But 48 hours later, this shark was killed and brought on board the ship. And when they cut it open, to their amazement, they found their shipmate inside the, the whale shark, unconscious, but very alive. He was rushed to the nearest hospital, and they said he was suffering from shock, but nothing else. And he was released after several hours. This man was on exhibit in the 1920s. He was on exhibit in, in a London museum. He was advertised as the Jonah of the 20th century. In 1926, Dr. Rimmer, president of Research Science Bureau, met this man, and he said that his physical appearance was very odd. He had no hair on his body, and he had yellowish-brown patches all over his skin from the acids in the, in the shark's stomach found that really interesting and just, I wonder how Jonah appeared. God could have kept anything like that from happening to him, or maybe, maybe, he did, maybe he was very disfigured. I don't know how Jonah looked. The Bible doesn't tell us. This makes your imagination go a bit. How did, how did Jonah look coming into Nineveh? Maybe his appearance got their attention. And hearing his story and how he rebelled and then and, and was swallowed by a fish, coming back as if from the dead to bring them a warning. That would have gotten my attention. Luke 11, and I forget which verse, tells us, I believe it's 30, that... Uh, Jonah was, Jesus said that Jonah was a sign 
to the Ninevites, to the people of Nineveh. I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 12, read verses 38 to 42. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees have been are, are talking with Jesus. Pharisees blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Um, they say that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebub, the chief of demons, and and all these things. Then down in verse 38, they demand a sign. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Jonah's experience of being swallowed by the great fish and vomited back onto dry land prefigured Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. His rising from the dead would be the great final sign of his ministry. It showed that God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins. All that remains is for us to repent, to agree with God that we are sinners, and turn to Him for mercy. Going back to Jonah chapter 3. Reading verses 6 to 9. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that it is, is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and take away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So this is the king and his nobles proclaiming this. To give you an idea of what the Assyrian kings were like and the wealth they lived with, archaeologists have uncovered Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh. It had 71 richly ornamented rooms with walls lined with sculptured, sculptured slabs showing his conquests and prisoners being tortured. These were on the walls of almost every room. In fact, there are over 8,000 feet of these sculptured slabs which is over a mile and a half of pictures. So imagine if you go out the drive and out to 28 and you head up toward Catlett, basically it'd be from here to the light, probably further than that. I didn't measure it this morning. The amount of pictures that are in one palace showing him as the conqueror, 
Can you imagine how full of yourself you would be if that's what you if that's what you're looking at every day? But this man repented. This man humbled himself. He arose and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Can you imagine the sound of over 120,000 people crying mightily to God and all their flocks and herds bawling for water? They haven't had water or food. What a noise there is, even if you don't milk the cows in time. <laughs> they all gather at the gate and you hear them. Well, what if there's no water and food? Must have been quite a ruckus. If you look back at verse 5, you'll see that the people, all the people repented before the king made the official decree. I think that's significant. H.L. Ellison said, anything and everything, I'm sorry, let me, to, to verse 8. The king had said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. H.A. Ellison said, anything and everything condemned by law and conscience is included under evil ways. He also said, violence means a defiance of law by one too strong to be brought into account. So they're to give up anything that violates their conscience, anything that's against the law, you see, the Assyrians assumed that because they were powerful and they could conquer other people groups, that they were entitled to treat them any way they wanted. They're dominant. They're the powerful ones. We're going to see in chapter 4 that Jonah, the prophet, sent to them, that God sent to them, thought he was better than the Assyrians. He didn't want God to have compassion on them. It's very easy to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. This leads to racism. It leads to unforgiveness. It leads to treating others wrong. Moving down to verse 10, we see God's response. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Now, God is immutable. God doesn't change. God's intention is to show mercy to all people. Whenever someone continues to reject God's Word, judgment will come. In this case, they were warned it would come in 40 days. But whenever someone repents, changes their mind, and turns to God, God will save them. God is willing to forgive every one of us. Anyone. God didn't change. The Ninevites changed. Had they not changed, judgment would have still come but God is willing to forgive when I turn to Him. <clears throat> I'm going to turn quickly to Jeremiah 
chapter 18. Jeremiah 18, reading verses 7 and 8. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up, to pull it down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Ezekiel 33.11 says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, in speaking about the day of the Lord, speaking about Jesus' return, Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because the Ninevites repented, God delayed His judgment of, of Nineveh for over 150 years. To put that in perspective, the Civil War ended just over 150 years ago. Now we think of, I think of that as a, that's a long time, 150 years? But it's five or six generations. And God delayed His judgment on Nineveh because the people repented. Sadly, after several generations, they went right back to the same patterns the same wicked way of living they had been in before, and God's judgment did come. And very interesting, just a side note, um, when God's judgment came and the city of Nineveh fell, remember it was built to withstand a 20-year siege? A coalition of enemies were able to conquer it because exactly like God had, had prophesied through Nahum, in Nahum chapters, it's two or three, said the rivers will overflow and that Nineveh will be conquered. That's exactly what happened. The Kosa River that flows right through Nineveh flooded. And it, it flooded big time and the walls were made of sun-dried bricks and those bricks crumbled and fell apart. And these hundred-foot walls, part of those walls came down and the enemy just came right in. <clears throat> What God says will happen. I want to mention three things. Repentance has three essential elements. Number one, sorrow for how I've sinned against God. I'm turning to 2 Corinthians. Just a couple verses there. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorrow in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Matthew 5 and verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it's talking about those who are mourning their sin, their sinful state. But we can't stop there. 
You think about Judas. Judas felt sorrow or remorse about betraying Jesus. He was sorry and he came back and wanted to return the money. But then he went out and hung himself. He stopped with feeling bad about what he had done. So the first element of repentance is sorrow for how I've sinned against God. But I need to move beyond that and forsake the sin. Number two, I need to forsake sin and turn away from it. Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8. Matthew 3, 7, and 8. <clears throat> this is the preaching of John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. To forsake sin, turn away from it. Acts, turning to Acts 26 and verse 20. Acts 26, 20. Here's Paul speaking to King Agrippa. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Not only do I need to feel sorrow for sin, but forsake it, turn away from it, turn to God. And number three, humbly surrender to the will of God. Take that. You can see that in, in the verse I just read at the end. Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. My actions need to match what I say. Do works befitting repentance. Also, if you think about Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, where Paul is surrounded by blinding light, the Lord Jesus gets Paul's attention. Paul's response, at that point, I guess he's Saul, but his response is, Lord, what do you want me to do? He asks God, he, he humbly submits himself to God's will. What do you want me to do? And God tells him what to do. Get up and go to, and, and they led him, blinded to where, you know the story. But to me, that just shows how repentance, an essential part of repentance, is submitting myself, humbly surrendering to the will of God. Jonah chapter 3 reminds me that everyone has a sin nature, all of us, and that everyone will need to repent as God makes us aware of sin in our lives. Sometimes there's something there that I have no idea about. And then the Holy Spirit puts his finger on that. I say, oh, yeah. Repentance is not a one-time thing. While it is an important event, it's a U-turn headed this direction and I've got to turn around, agree with God. I was heading the wrong way. I'm going this way. 
It's a major change, but it's not a one-time event. Repentance needs to be a way of life. Think about when you're driving down the road. When I'm driving down the road, I have probably a bad habit. It makes things very interesting. But when I'm driving down the road, I have a habit of hunting while I'm driving. I like to think about, let's see, think about how the hills and things are and where would the deer be bedded and then I look to see if they're there and I check to see if, if the deer are going to show up where I think they probably would be. Well, sometimes in doing that, I look a little longer than I think I was going to. And we have a tendency when we're driving to steer where you look. And it's happened occasionally that my wife will say, hello, ditch. <laughs> I'll say, oh, we're not going in the ditch. And she says, yes, we're headed toward the ditch. You've got to quit hunting. <laughs> when that happens, when Ann says, hello, ditch, and I am angling toward the ditch, when I find, when I recognize that I'm not headed where I wanted to be, and I'm now angling toward the ditch. I have to make the necessary corrections quickly before there are painful or deadly results. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It needs to be a way of life. I've asked Daryl to lead us in the song, Search Me, O God, Know My Heart.